Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, the rest of you can open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, before we get into that, <clears throat> um, let me give you a little update on Discipleship Hour. We've been <clears throat> not meeting for Discipleship Hour over these last couple of Sundays because of the holidays, but Discipleship Hour classes will be resuming next Sunday. And um, <clears throat> next Sunday we're going to do something a, a, a little unusual, and that is we're going to have a class on how to invite people to church, which might sound fairly simple, except that um, uh, there's always things to learn about the most effective ways to do this. And so that's going to be next Sunday, 9 a.m. Eddie Slavin is going to be leading that class, and he promises Concannon's Donuts. So there's your incentive uh, to come, but hopefully you'll come because you want to know how to invite people to church. So next Sunday at 9 a.m. <clears throat> and then the Sunday after that, January 16, we're going to have a Q&A session with the elder candidates here at the church. We've announced to you already that John Connor and Joe Blaylock have been nominated to serve as elders in this church, and we always like to give opportunity to you to talk to them and get to know them a little better. And so we have a Q&A session. You'll write down your questions, submit them, and we'll ask them to the candidates, and they will answer them. Um, so pray for these guys. That's not the most pleasant thing to go through, but they're willing to do it. And um, again, this is an opportunity for you to get to know these candidates better before you place your votes um, during the annual meeting on January 24th, I believe it is, last Monday in January. So Q&A session is January 16th, 9 a.m. during the discipleship hour. Um, I want to give a shout out to the Rodenbecks back here. We've got Josh and Mandy, um, <clears throat> longtime members from years ago, and it's just great to have you guys back visiting. Uh, they've been away for a few years. They started uh, a very fruitful singles ministry here at New Life uh, years ago, so some of you know them, some of you don't, but for those of you who do, make sure you greet the Rodenbecks before they leave today. So... Let's turn our attention to the scriptures now. If you don't have a Bible with you, we got paperback Bibles in, uh, the, uh, underneath the chairs in front of you. You can grab one. It would be very helpful to you to have a Bible open before you. And our passage is on page 10 of the paperback Bibles, Genesis 22. We are going through this series on uh, the life of Abraham here at New Life. We've been in this for several months now, and actually we're nearing the end of this sermon series. We're going to read chapter 22 in a moment, but it's in chapter 25 that Abraham dies. And so, uh, God willing, by the end of this month, we will be completing this sermon series on the life of Abraham. And uh, we'll part from Genesis for a little while. We'll, we'll get back to Genesis eventually, but uh, we'll part from Genesis for a little while after this series is over, but we're, we're almost there. And one of the things you might have noticed as we have been going through the book of Genesis is that um, sometimes <clears throat> we've had to deal with some kind of relatively obscure passages. Uh, you know, sometimes we're looking at situations where there's maybe a dispute about a water well. Um, we're learning about kings like Kedar Laomar. Um, we're reading about circumcision rituals. And sometimes it just seems maybe pretty obscure and like, who knows about these things? These are people I've never heard of. Even if you're 
a Christian for many years, you might find some of these things to be unusual to you, but then eventually we get to certain passages in Genesis that are very well-known. They're, they're, um, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you've probably heard this story. And in fact, there are certain stories in Genesis that are famous even outside the church that many people are aware of and many people talk about. And that's one of the passages that we're going to be looking at today in Genesis 22. This is the passage that is sometimes called the Binding of Isaac. And uh, here's a very famous painting depicting this scene we're about to read about. This was painted in 1603, the Binding of Isaac. Uh, This is a passage that many people find very perplexing, uh, difficult to accept, a passage that for many is troubling, uh, a passage that for some is a, a kind of a stumbling block, How is it that we can worship and love a God who would do what we are about to read? It's a question a lot of people have. Sometimes people say, I'm not going to believe in Jesus. I'm not going to be a Christian because there are passages like this in your Bible. Richard Dawkins, a very famous atheist, has written about this passage in Genesis 22, said it's disgraceful. He says it's an example of child abuse or at the very least divine bullying. So is that what we have here? Uh, Is this a passage that should offend us? What I would suggest to you today is that when we understand this passage correctly, it is one of the most significant stories in the entire Bible, certainly in the Old Testament. It's one of the most inspiring stories for those of us who desire to live by faith, and it presents one of the most beautiful and vivid and powerful pictures of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When rightly understood, this is not something that should trouble us, but something that should encourage us. And I can't imagine a better passage to start the year with than this one, Genesis 22. So if you're able to stand, please do so out of respect for the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to read this entire chapter. Genesis 22, 1 through 24. After these things... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife So they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, <clears throat> after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel, Bethuel father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gehem, Tehash, and Makkah. Holy Spirit of the living God, we pray, come, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> So perhaps uh, as I read that passage, you kind of got the sense, got the feel of why this is a passage that many people find troubling, a man called to slaughter his own son. Well, just to get you caught up a little bit, we're in chapter 22, that means last time we were in chapter 21, uh, we took two sermons in chapter 21. At the beginning of chapter 21, we saw this child Isaac born to Abraham and Isaac, uh, to uh, Abraham and Sarah. And um, <clears throat> through the rest of chapter 21, we saw uh, Hagar and Ishmael get sent out into the wilderness, and then that dispute about the well between Abraham and Abimelech. And so that was the rest of chapter 21. And now we find ourselves here in chapter 22, and the first thing that we find as the narrative continues in this testing of Abraham is a very surprising command. Surprising command. So notice here at the very beginning of this chapter, verse 1, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. So it's a very important word. God tested Abraham. Uh, it doesn't say he's seeking to punish Abraham. We get no indication that there's any anger or vengeance in God as he calls Abraham to do this unusual thing. So it's a testing. And God gives this command, and he says it very clearly to Abraham. He says in verse 2, Take your son, your only son. Now that alone might make you stop and pause for just a second. If you're a careful reader of the text, you might be thinking, wait a minute, Isaac is not Abraham's only son. There's another son, right? There's a son named 
Ishmael. So why is this saying that Isaac is his only son? Well, there's different ways of of looking at this. One way we could uh, approach this is to see that the word only can also mean unique or isolated. Uh, Remember at the end of chapter 21 that Hagar and Ishmael were kind of cast out, sent out into the wilderness, and so actually Ishmael is not in Abraham's household any longer. Um, But probably the best way to explain this is that this is referring specifically to Isaac as the son who is in the context of redemption. Covenantally speaking, God has one intent, and that is the redemptive line would flow, flow through Isaac, not through Ishmael. And so that's what God means here by calling Isaac the only son. So, what is to be done? God gives this very specific command. Take this son, your only son, verse 2, head to Moriah. Moriah is about a three days journey away. Uh, Many scholars are a little bit uncertain about where this is, but many think that this would be where Jerusalem is today. Uh, Abraham and Isaac are in Beersheba at this time, so they're told to go from Beersheba to Moriah. And then there is this command, offer up your son there, verse 2, as a burnt offering. Surprising command. I want you to take your son, Abraham, offer him up as a burnt offering. Now, a burnt offering is explained later um, when the nation of Israel is established. The sacrificial system develops in Leviticus chapter 1. We learn that this burnt offering is the most costly of all offerings because the burnt offering requires that the thing that is offered up be completely consumed by fire. And that's what God is telling Abraham to do with his son. So, you can see why I'm saying this is a surprising command, right? I mean, this is really surprising. I mean, just on the surface of it, it seems very surprising, but it's surprising maybe for more reasons than you might realize. I mean, first of all, it's surprising from a moral perspective because later when God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel, the sixth of those commandments is do not murder. And it seems a little bit here, doesn't it, like God is telling Abraham to murder somebody. So, what's going on? How can God do this? There's an emotional surprise here also. We've heard many times as we've been going through this story about Abraham that God uh, made Abraham and Sarah wait 25 years for this promised child to arrive. 25 years, finally the child arrives in chapter 21, and now all of a sudden God is requiring Abraham to slaughter his child? It's even said many times here, the son whom you love, it says in verse 2. God knows that Abraham deeply, dearly loves his son, and yet he's asking him to kill him? It seems cruel, doesn't it? It feels a little cruel. But there's also a redemptive reason why this is so surprising. There's a moral reason. There's an emotional reason. There's a redemptive reason, and that is the fact that God has promised that this redemptive line, this promise, this intent that he has to bless all the nations through an offspring is through Isaac. And so now it seems like God is prepared to interrupt that entire redemptive plan because if Isaac dies, there's no more promise. There's no more covenant. What is God doing? It seems surprising. It seems confusing. Why in the world would this be happening? 
So we have to wrestle with this. Uh, again, as I said, there are many people who look at this and they, just, they can't deal with it. They can't stomach this. They can't accept that God would require something of this of Abraham. So, uh, you know, you can read, look at commentaries and uh, consider different explanations. There are a lot of different explanations offered to kind of mitigate what's happening here. First of all, sometimes people will say something like this. Well, they'll say um, that Isaac actually wasn't killed in the end. Okay, So, God never really intended Isaac to be killed. So, you know, maybe that's one way to look at it. Uh, some will point to the prohibitions in Leviticus chapter 18 where it says there's a command saying you shall not offer up your children as a sacrifice to Molech, which is a, a pagan deity at the time. And so the commentator I was reading said, you know, there isn't any prohibition against offering your children to the one true God. It's just a prohibition against offering your children to Molech, the false god. Some say, well, you know, there are occasions when sometimes we have to offer up our children as a sacrifice. For instance, if uh, a nation goes to war. I mean, our nation went to war in World War II. There was a draft, and a lot of young men were called into battle, and a lot of them died. And many people would look at that and say, well, the president at the time was justified because of the cause that was before them. And so if God could be just, or if a national leader could be justified in calling young people to give their lives, perhaps God is justified as well. One last explanation is that, quite frankly, God has a right to do whatever He wants. I mean, God is sovereign. He's in charge. Uh, the Scriptures tell us that all of our days were written in His book before one of them came to be. That is, God has determined the date of our birth and the date of our death. And so here He's determining the date of Isaac's death. He determines all of our deaths, and that's what he's doing here, so there's really nothing quite so unusual about it. <laughs> um, you know, all of these explanations, there's a grain of truth, I think, in, in all of them, but I don't know, they all just kind of fall a little flat for me. <laughs> uh, they're just not quite sufficient, even though I think there is some truth in all of them. Um, so. What I think is very important to understand as we deal with this surprising command from God, the thing we have to keep in mind, the thing that we can't forget, and the thing that I think we lose sight of when we read a story like this, is we lose sight of Abraham's absolutely unique role in the Bible. His unique position in the whole flow of redemptive history. Abraham is a man, a person, a human being like you and me in one sense. He's, he's not a superhero. He's not an angel. He, he was a mere man, a sinful man, created in God's image, a human being just like you and me. In that sense, he was very much like us. But he was also very much unlike us. Abraham had this very unique role. Abraham was called to be the patriarch of the nation of Israel, the nation from which would come the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be given for the salvation of the world. There's only one man who's ever been called to that role, and that's Abraham. Abraham was called to be the 100-year-old father of a miracle baby through a 90-year-old wife, Sarah. It's highly unique. 
Not everybody has that call. Not everybody is called to do something like that. In fact, nobody has been called to do something like that other than Abraham. In chapter 17, remember, God entered into a covenant. He chose Abraham, called him out of the land of the Chaldeans, and entered into a covenant with Abraham. Not with just anybody. Abraham was chosen for that purpose, and that purpose alone. Isaac, too, a man, human being, just like you and me, sinful person, but also highly unique. He is the unique promised child. He's in a category altogether different than you or me or your children. The impression is sometimes given when we read a passage like this that that, that God just likes to play this game, that he just kind of willy-nilly, arbitrarily decides somebody that he wants to make squirm a little and put them on the hot seat and say, hey, let's just see what happens, and let's ask this person to kill his kid. That's the God that we worship. Casual God, an arbitrary God, a God who likes to play cruel games. But that's not Abraham. He's not like any other person. The context has to be considered, and so this is the way I want to say it. This, what we're reading in Genesis 22, is an extraordinary situation with uniquely called individuals, Abraham and Isaac, who are given an unprecedented and unrepeated command. This is not arbitrary. This is not something that God does on a regular basis. This is something that God has done one time with one man and one son and he's not going to do it again and he didn't do it before so it's unusual it's unique it's set apart it's extraordinary and this is important to realize friends because you know there are times people can read the bible and draw conclusions that are dangerous i mean there's a book called under the banner of heaven and it's about this man in utah who murdered a woman and her daughter, and he said, God told me to. And his defense was, you can't even put me in jail because I was doing what God called me to do. And what God called me to do, I had to do. God spoke to me and told me to do this. Well, friends, I can say to you this morning, God did not tell that man to do that. I don't know how he drew that conclusion. I don't know if he was mentally ill. I don't know what it was, he was delusional, God didn't call him to do that, and God's not going to call you to do that. God's not going to call you to sacrifice your children on the altar. He's not going to do that. He did do it one time to Abraham, but he's not doing it again. And we just got to keep that in mind. That might not alleviate all the tension that you might feel as we read this passage, but why don't we continue and let's see what else we can learn. Um, about the testing of Abraham. The next thing we see here is radical obedience. Perhaps maybe even more surprising than God's command is the obedience that Abraham offers up to God, the obedience actually that Isaac offers up to his father too. I mean, they get this command and they just do it. So let's see how Abraham responds to this surprising command. Verse 1, when God calls to Abraham, Abraham says, here am I. I mean, it's just Abraham like, I'm, I'm ready to go, God. No hesitation. 
Abraham's ready to do whatever God wants him to do. And so then we see the drama that just kind of unfolds in great detail. Uh, We see in verse 3 that uh, early in the morning, Abraham rises after receiving this command, and he saddles his donkey. He takes a couple of young men with him. He, He cuts up the wood to take on the trip and heads out to this place called Moriah. Uh, Verse 6, we see that he uh, even gives to Isaac the wood to carry, and we don't hear anything from Isaac until we get to verse 7, and finally Isaac speaks up, wondering what in the world's going on, and in verse 7, Isaac says, uh, you know, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, but where's the lamb? Dad? I'm not thinking at all that Isaac is the one that Abraham intends to sacrifice. Where's the lamb? And so Isaac, or excuse me, Abraham says, God will provide. Verse 8, God will provide. There's, there's some extraordinary faith there. We're going to learn more about in a second. God's going to provide. Don't worry. Certainly Abraham is not quite sure exactly what's going to happen, but he has confidence that God will provide. So the tension mounts, and um, we get to verse 9, and... Abraham builds this altar, and he lays the wood down on this altar, and he binds Isaac, ties him up. Isaac, we still don't get any you know, further words from Isaac as to what he's thinking. I mean, he's got to be thinking at this point, I think I might be the one he is going to sacrifice. And then in verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And just at that moment, verses 11 and 12, an angel of the Lord speaks up. There's intervention. God speaks out through this angel and interrupts the proceeding and says to Abraham, do not do it. Don't lay your hand on this boy. Don't touch him. And then a very key phrase there, it says, because now I know, verse 12, now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you fear God. Now remember, this whole story is a test. It's a test. What is the purpose of a test? Well, take a test to see if you pass the class. Certainly, that's one purpose of a test. Uh, You take a test to see if you make the team. It's another purpose of, of a test. Those are kind of surface purposes of tests, I guess, but if we want to press into this a little more, really what tests are intended to do is to see what you're made of. Tests are given to see what's inside of you because when we're tested, that's when the thing inside of us rises up to the surface. Uh, in, in sports, we, we talk about this a lot. We might say that a, a team is pretty good because they've been winning throughout a, a particular season, but they've been playing really bad teams so far. You know, they've had many easy games, and so we say, well, we think this team is pretty good, but they haven't been tested. And then when the schedule shows up, the, uh, the, the strong team that's going to offer up some competition what we say is now we're going to see what this team is made of because they're playing a tough opponent. They're going to be tested. That's what's happening here with Abraham. This is a test to see what he is made of. And so God says, now I know. 
Now I know that you fear me, and the reason I know that is because I've seen what you have done. It's not that God doesn't know what Abraham was going to do. God is omniscient. He knows all things. But what God is saying here is is you have shown yourself in your actions. Your faith has been proven. It's been on full display. Your radical obedience has shown that you fear me. And Abraham, you've passed the test through your radical obedience. And so the result of that then, if you look down to verse 16, the angel comes and speaks to Abraham again and says, verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, and then what does he do? He repeats this covenantal promise that has been repeated over and over again in our study of the life of Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your offspring as much as the stars of heaven and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring all the nations shall be blessed. All the world is going to be blessed by the fulfillment of this covenant promise. And it's like God is saying here, the covenant promises may continue because Abraham, you have been obedient to what I have called you to do. Do you see how unique this is? What God calls you to do is not dependent upon whether the redemptive covenant promises continue. That went through Abraham. It was a very extraordinary, unique, special, specific situation. And Abraham passed it. And thank God that he did because God was able to continue then to fulfill his promise. So how do we think about this and how it applies to you and me? Uh, Let me just say again, I can see some Christians with a sensitive conscience reading this passage and thinking, is God going to make me sacrifice my children? What would I do if God asked me to do that? I'm here to tell you today, God's not going to ask you to do that. He's not going to ask you to sacrifice your children. But God is going to test you. This is a test. Tests are played in different ways. Tests were given to Abraham in a very specific, unprecedented, unrepeated way. He might not test you in this way, but he's going to test you in some way. To be a follower of Jesus is to be ready for the test. James 1 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You'll be tested. 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You'll be tested. You might be tested through an illness. You might be tested through a career setback. You might be tested through some kind of financial hit. You might face some kind of sexual temptation. All of these are tests to see what's inside you. It's not a performance test like, okay, if you pass the test and do well enough, then I will save you. That's not what God is saying. This is not a test to be saved. This is not a requirement to perform in a particular way so that you can know that God loves you. This is not a salvation test. This is a genuineness test. This is a reality test. This is a test to see if the faith that you profess is real, to see if you're genuine in your faith. It's easy to profess faith when you're not going through a a trial. But when you go through a trial, that's when what is deep down inside you will come up and bubble to the surface, which is what James 1 tells us, right? Referring exactly to this chapter. Was not Abraham our father justified 
by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. It wasn't saved by his works, it's that his faith was proven genuine by his works. And that's why God tested Abraham, that's why God might test you and me. I have a dear friend who lives in, <clears throat> in Indianapolis, his name is Bahar, uh, family from Egypt, and um, Bahar, very godly man, I was in Bible study fellowship with him for, for years, just a humble, godly man, faithful husband, father, and he contracted a virus, some kind of a parvovirus, they think, that they're not sure how or, or why, and it just hit him so hard, it put him in a coma for a while, and he's just not the same person that he used to be. And in fact, he is in a nursing home now, and he sits in a wheelchair. He's, he's younger than I am, and um, he's probably going to be there the rest of his life. And he has absolutely no short-term memory. He doesn't remember what he had for lunch by one o'clock in the afternoon. It's just shocking. I just can't believe what's happened to my friend. But we got another friend who goes and sees him, and what we're told is that um, something that Baher really likes to do in the nursing home is sing, bless the Lord, O my soul. He just sings that over and over again. He's able to recite the 103rd Psalm from memory. Can't remember what he had for lunch, but he can remember the 103rd Psalm. He talks about Jesus all the time. He, he asks this question. He says, what's my testimony like? Am I testifying to Jesus? That's what he wants to know. That's what he's concerned about. That's a man who is tested, and what is in him is bubbling to the surface. And it's faith in Jesus, love for Jesus, love for the Word of God. So friends, that's the question I think we can take from this. When you're tested, what comes up? What bubbles to the surface? What's inside you? It will be revealed through tests as it was revealed in Abraham. So one last thing to see. <clears throat> Here's what Bruce Waltke says. God does not test us to lead us into sin, but to test the quality of what we are. The proof of what we are is what we do. So, one more thing to consider. Extraordinary faith. Consider Abraham's extraordinary faith. There's a surprising command to God. There's Abraham's radical obedience, and his radical obedience is based in this extraordinary faith, which is really, I think, the main point of this passage, Abraham's extraordinary faith. We know that because if we look to Hebrews 11, we're told, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, that's Abraham, was in the act of offering up his only son. Abraham displayed this great faith. I mean, again, just trying to get into the thought or the emotions of Abraham during this time. Just imagine him walking for three days with his son. I just wonder if every time he looked at that knife, it just reminded him of what he was about to do. And he got this sinking feeling. Being with his son for three days, walking along, he must have been in absolute agony. And we know from verse 10, Abraham 
was prepared to slay his son. Right? He lifted up the knife and got ready to do it. It's not like this was pretend. It's not like Abraham was faking. It's not like Abraham thought, well, God won't require this of me. He was ready to do it. Believing somehow that Isaac was going to, in the end, survive this thing. It's extraordinary faith. How do we know that Abraham believed that Isaac would survive? Look at verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, these young men that came along with him, he says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He's saying, Isaac and I are going over here, and Isaac and I are going to come back. Isaac's coming with me. And yet, Abraham is also saying, I'm willing to slay him. But yet, he's going to come back. Now, I can't imagine what Abraham maybe thought or how he worked that out in his mind, but he just knew that God was faithful to his promises. He knew that God was not going to abandon his redemptive project. He knew God was going to do what he said he was going to do, even if it meant that God had to raise Isaac from the dead. And that might have been the thing that Abraham was thinking, and in fact, Hebrews 11, as this passage goes on to say, confirms that. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Figuratively speaking, we know that Isaac didn't actually die, but there's kind of a sense in which, you know, symbolically anyway, he was brought back, because in Abraham's mind, he was as good as dead because of what Abraham intended to do. But he was received back because Abraham must have had this confidence. Even if I have to go through with this, God's going to raise him up because God is faithful and nothing's going to get in the way of the fulfillment of his promises. He is going to do what he said he was going to do. He's going to raise him up. Now, when you think about somebody being raised from the dead, <laughs> who do you think of? Our Lord Jesus, risen from the dead. Isaac wasn't risen from the dead. He wasn't killed, but Jesus was really dead and was really risen from the dead. And we see just these parallels to the gospel that are just remarkable in this passage. Um, first of all, Isaac carries the wood. Did you, did you note that? Isaac is the one, in verse 6, is called to carry the wood upon which he is going to lay for his own death. And if we look at John 19, 17, you'll see that Jesus carried his own cross up the hill to Calvary, carrying the cross on which he would die. We see Abraham giving his only son. We talked about that a moment ago. Uh, very important phrase. It occurs three different times in this passage. Abraham gave his only son, the most famous verse in the scriptures, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And then we have most vividly displayed, God provides a substitute. God provides a substitute. After the angel comes in and interrupts the slaughter of Isaac in verse 13, if you look at that in your scriptures, look at verse 13. Abraham lifts up his eyes and he sees a ram in the thicket. Not a lamb, but, but a ram nonetheless. 
a substitute. It's caught in the thicket, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. That's a substitute. God provided something that could be taken in Isaac's place. A substitute was provided to die so that Isaac could live. And so Abraham goes on, verse 14, and he names the place the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Just what he said to Isaac earlier. Don't worry, Isaac, the Lord will provide. And the Lord did. He provided a substitute. And friends, the way we got to think about this today, living in the age in which we do, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament age, is that God has provided a substitute for you. And his name is Jesus. He has provided someone to die in your place. He's provided someone to take the punishment that you deserve. He's provided a Savior to die so that you who trust in Him could live. That's the gospel, friends. That's the heart of the gospel, a substitute provided for you and me in the person of Jesus. And this is what Romans 8 says. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So, friends, maybe it shocks you still that, that God would command Abraham to do this thing, to slay his only son. But what should shock you more is that God would give up his son for you. Fact is, Abraham didn't have to give up his son, but God did have to give up his son if you and I were going to be saved, that there's no other way. And when God gave up Jesus and sent him into this world and Jesus went to the cross, there was nobody who stepped in and said, oh, Jesus, you don't have to do this. There's nobody that pulled him back. There's nobody who said, oh, this is unnecessary. There's nobody who said, stop, 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 no, you can live. No, Jesus had to die. And he laid down his life of his own volition as a substitute for you and me. That's really the only test, friends, that you should be thinking about passing, is your faith in this Savior. It's not a performance test. It's a test about whether you will give up on your reliance upon yourself, your trust in all your efforts, your confidence in all your morality, and trust somebody else. The substitute, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful, Father, for the gospel. We are grateful for your love for us. We're grateful, Lord, that you've provided a substitute for us so that we don't have to die for our sins, knowing that Jesus died for us. Thank you for that, and help us, Lord, now to live with a willingness to give up whatever you call us to give up in extraordinary faith and radical obedience for you, because you have offered up such a great sacrifice for us. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us to live faithfully for you in the year ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.